for the rest of us, we're going to be talking about our view of Jesus. And if you're influenced at all by pop culture, which would be all of us, uh, your view of Jesus could probably use a little bit of help. One cultural commentary, uh, one cultural commentator said the American Jesus is essentially a bearded woman in a dress. Kind of interesting to think about. An overly effeminate, bearded woman in a dress, he goes on to say, who finds himself preoccupied, most of all, with playing with lambs. Kind of silly. But it seems to be a big part of the way we view Jesus is someone who is lowly, meek, mild, effeminate, weak, incapable. And here's our view of Jesus. And by the way, can you trust him? When he says something like vengeance is mine. I can't trust a Jesus like that to bring about justice. In fact, I'm going to be pretty tempted to take matters into my own hands. If that's the kind of Jesus I'm trusting in to take care of me and the world around me. And so I can't think of a better way to sort of help bring things back into balance than would be a good look, a good meditation, if you will, on the second coming of Jesus. And so if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Revelation 19, which we read for our scripture reading, a good sober view at the second coming helps us to see that, yes, Jesus, meek and mild, that is true, has compassion on sinners, absolutely But he is also the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is planning to return one day and he will return as judge. I think this would be helpful for us because it will allow us to maybe have, hopefully have a more biblical view of Jesus, which allows us to be better, more fitting worshipers. If you consider with me for a moment that, that really where idolatry starts, the worship of a false god, Where idolatry starts is in our perspective, in our understanding. True worship is going to start in our perspective, in our understanding. Just who is Jesus and and, and what what is your view of him? Is it a biblical view? Is it a true view? Or is it a view that you've gotten from our culture, even church culture? And so while we have one more week before we start Ecclesiastes, which Lord willing we'll do next week, I thought it would be helpful for us to to be reminded yet again of Jesus and his greatness. And Revelation 19 is a great text for that. If you're taking notes this morning, you'll be able to follow along with this outline. We'll look at three awful scenes highlighting the return of Christ. Three awful scenes highlighting the return of Christ. You want to say more, it's so that we can have a right understanding of who he is, for for starters. By the way, I love the word awful, right? Awful, right? It can be used in the negative or in the positive. And by the way, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be awful. Believing sense, from believer's perspective, we're going to be in awe of his greatness. In the unbelieving sense, from an unbelieving perspective, it will be awful. And they will be in awe of his greatness in another sense. And so these awful scenes, let me preview them for you now. Number one, the description of the great warrior king. 
The description of the great warrior king is in verses 11 to 16. So it's the description of the great warrior king. And then the second awful scene highlighting the return of Christ is the invitation to the birds of prey. The invitation to the birds of prey, verses 17 and 18. And the third awful scene highlighting the return of Christ, giving us a more biblical view of Christ so that we might be true worshipers. Number three, the defeat of the beast and the slaying of the unrepentant. The defeat of the beast and the slaying of the unrepentant, verses 19 to 21. And if you missed any of those, I all but promise to repeat them uh, in, in the body of what we're doing. One more word of preview would be, when we're talking this morning about the second coming of Jesus, we're talking about something, as we'll see, is biblical. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We're also talking about something that is universally, has universally been accepted uh, in the Christian church by and large. This is not a, a unique Omaha Bible church doctrine. Um, Christians have believed throughout the centuries, oh, even before Christianity, throughout the Old Testament, in the return of Jesus, the bodily return of Jesus. As he resurrected and ascended, the people who were there as witnesses were told that he would return in the same way in which he went. Christians confess, we agree together in the return of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean there aren't professing Christians who have lost sight of it, but Christians, by and large, this is something we've hold, held near and dear. We hear it in even the, the historic confessions beyond the Bible that we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, whichever version you'd like. This is something we can unite around with all believers who've gone before us. The Apostle Paul, even, in uh, his letters to Timothy, would describe unbelievers as those who reject Christ's return, even if they profess to be believers. So let's have a good, sober, clear, awe-inspiring, awful look at Jesus this morning so that we might be on our way to being genuine worshipers and, and, and not something else. Okay? Are you with me? I hope you are. You're still here. Uh, let's get ready for this. Uh, it's going to become PG-13. You'll have to close your children's eyes and ears. Um, but it is what it is. Okay, first awful scene highlighting the return of Christ and giving us a right view of him as the description of the great warrior king. We'll invest most of our time here. Let's pick it up in verse 11, though we won't get very far. Then I saw heaven opened. Let me pause just for a second to say we've, we see this elsewhere in the Bible and, and heaven opens like in Ezekiel 1.1 and, and that takes your breath away and sucks the air out of the room because heaven has opened. I think three different times. Yes, in chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 11 verse 19, chapter 15 verse 5 in Revelation. Heaven opens and it's <gasps> something grand is going to happen. And as we'll see, the revealing of the sovereign Lord, King, Judge, Jesus descending on his enemies is why heaven is opened. Now let's look at this splendid appearance described in verse 11 where we read on, And behold, behold a white horse. My translation has an exclamation point after that, and fittingly so, because it's, it, heaven opens and, and behold a white horse. Not the white of surrender, 
not the white of the, the, the fake or faux rulers, by the way, that you would even see if you read through the book of Revelation, because we've seen white horses before. We might call them copycats. Chapter two, verse six, not, not, not the donkey that Jesus came in on lowly, meek and mild at his first coming. But here it's the white stallion emblematic of, of a conqueror, of a ruler, of dominion. That's how he comes this time in what I might like to call the true triumphal entry. Or maybe we would say the second triumphal entry. It's very stirring. And then in verse 11, if we continue on, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And, and maybe this is just for redundancy's sake to make the point that, that, that he, he's faithful. You can trust him. Or, yes, faithful, you can trust him and true as opposed to all of the, the imitations, all of the false messiahs. And think about this for a moment in light of the world you live in and I live in and the air that we breathe. See, the Jesus we're hearing about here might not be the Jesus you learned about in Sunday school. This is not the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school. But I've got to make a decision. Which Jesus is it? Here, we're told... Yes, it's in the context of justice. Yes, it's in the context of, of, of ruling and righteousness. But it does say he is faithful, trustworthy, and true. Will the true Jesus stand up? Well, it's this Jesus. We might have a skewed perspective, but, but which Jesus should I really believe in? It's this one. It's this one. And you can trust him. Trustworthy. And I alluded to this earlier, but I just want to make mention of it here rather quickly. Again, stop and think about if the Jesus you're trusting in is the effeminate one who couldn't hurt a flea. What kind of trust are you investing in him? I'm not investing much trust in him. When this Jesus again says, vengeance is mine, applied to Pat, Pat, don't take retaliation into your own hands. Don't seek vengeance yourself. If I have the limp-wristed, effeminate Jesus who couldn't hurt a flea, I think I will seek vengeance myself because he certainly can't. See, there are big ramifications here in your view of Jesus, even in the practical way the church functions. If we can believe in a Jesus who's militant, and he is, he's not only militant, but he is militant, then we ourselves don't have to become militant because we can leave the work up to him. And the lie we believe sometimes in the church and in broader Christian culture is we think somehow the Jesus who is going to bring about everything good and right is the weak Jesus. It's the opposite. We need a strong Jesus so that we, we, we actually can be nice to people even who are mean to us. You see? If your Jesus is the weak Jesus, you'll have a really, really, really hard time being nice to people who are mean to you because you've got to take matters into your own hands. I also want you to notice in verse 11, and in righteousness, he judges. He is a judge. He continually judges, literally. But notice it's in righteousness. Righteousness is the same word for justice. The idea is fairness. 
He's not going to say, well, all these people have been really good and I'm going to give them something really bad. No, he's the righteous judge. Okay, we've got rebellion against the one true God and hurting the one true God's people. What's What do they deserve? He's going to come and he's going to come as a judge, but he's going to come as a righteous judge, a a just judge, a fair judge. How judges are supposed to be. And something in your heart of hearts knows that to be true because you're made in the image of God. That's why sometimes you call out for justice. This is why the whole creation groans and moans, according to Romans chapter 8, for this day we're talking about here. But do notice also in verse 11, he says, after he says, and in righteousness he judges, it says, and makes war. I love it that it's in one verse to help us with our perspective. He's the righteous judge, the just judge who makes war. This brings just war theory to a whole new perspective. But here it's not theory. It's just war. This is fair war. Wrong has been done. Justice will be executed. This is Jesus militant. This is Jesus jurist. And I realize that for some this is just more than they can take. And it might be more than you can take. And I want to have a spirit of empathy toward you. I realize you may have just gotten whiplash spiritually because of absolute culture shock. Because this isn't the Jesus you learned about in Sunday school. Or this isn't the Jesus you've learned about on NPR. But we are reading from the Bible, which is the Christian book. And it's pretty clear that he is a judge. And it will be a righteous war that he brings. And so you have the decision. Am I going to continue to embrace a God of my own liking and my own imagination and of pop culture? The Old Testament word for that, by the way, is idolatry. The New Testament word too, by the way. Or am I going to be freed from the shackles, the handcuffs of idolatry, and be freed to worship the one true God as he's revealed himself? My mind is going to Jesus' words in John's gospel where he says, you'll know the truth. And the truth will what? It will set you free. And here we have this Jesus who is the faithful and true. Allow a biblical right perspective of Him that is actually true to set you free and embrace Him truly and worship Him. How freeing is that? It's humbling, but it's very, very freeing. Now let's move on to the further description in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Used elsewhere in the scripture for, for, for fierceness toward adversaries. These flaming, fiery eyes. Or maybe it's for, for his ability to penetrate because he's all-knowing and he can see this, this perfect, absolute kind of x-ray vision thing which allows him to judge justly. Both would be theologically true. Both would be biblically true. One is probably in view here. Then verse 12 goes on. Continue on with me. And on his head are many diadems. He's 
crowned and he has many, many jewels, many, many diadems on his head. We won't take the time to go there, but this is on purpose when you follow the flow of Revelation because we see diadems on other false rulers. For example, in chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon, the beast in chapter 13, verse 1. And here, I think on purpose, he's described fittingly over and against those others. He has many diadems. He is the one. He is the real one. They've been imposters up until now. And he sets himself out as different and unique. He's the true and supreme and genuine King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Chapter 19, verse 16. And then if we go on in verse 12, it says, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And let me tell you what that name is. I just baited the hook and got a lot of you, not all of you. Uh, by the way, if your study Bible tells you what this name is that no one knows, um, just remember the notes at the bottom are human opinion. Uh, <laughs> I'm going I'm to go for it here. You know who this is? You know what this name is? I don't know. Now, trust me, as a Bible scholar, <laughs> no one knows his name. And we could speculate and say, well, maybe, maybe this is Yahweh, the unspeakable name of God. And, and by the way, Jesus is Yahweh. We could prove that from Scripture. But it seems more likely this unknown name is unknown. <laughs> okay? But what is fascinating, we can know something about the unknown name, I think. The church at Pergamum. And chapter 2, verse 17, is promised to know his unknown name if she overcomes. If she shows herself to be a genuine church, you'll know his name. It seems this is an a unnamed known. Uh, unnamed known. <laughs> An unnamed name of Jesus that is reserved for for later revelation at his second coming. But it is promised to believers to know this name if they persevere through it all. And I would, again, speculate that based upon chapter 2, verse 17. Um, revelation chapter 3, verse 12, uh, we won't take the time to go there, but it's also, it talks about a, a new name of Jesus. It seems this is, this is the name of Jesus that we'll know later if we're believers and we'll know the unknown name of Jesus, which emphasizes closeness, which, which emphasizes fellowship, which emphasizes intimacy. We're going to know Jesus like we haven't known him before. That's reserved. That's reserved for believers. Oh, we, we long for that day when we'll, 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 we'll see him and we'll, we'll be made like him and we'll know him like we didn't know him before. So there's hope in these words, in this unknown one, at least unknown for now. Then his clothing is described in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Another really fascinating and important interpretive question. Here is Jesus, he's, he's got a robe on and it's dipped in blood. And so the question is, is this his blood? Well, Revelation chapter 5, verse, what is it, 9, talks about uh, by your blood you ransom people. 
So Jesus, obviously, we're Christians. We believe he's he shed his blood to atone for sins. And, and so as he comes again, is his robe that has blood on it, is it with his blood reminding us of his great saving power? Could be something else. And I would lean this way, according to our flow and context and in light of the Old Testament. Any guesses? It's the blood of his enemies. This is a second coming text, wrath and retribution text. It's the blood of his enemies. I think it is. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. You can put a marker in Revelation chapter 19 and Isaiah 63. And it's helpful that we go there uh, for a couple of reasons. But we're going to see uh, in this text, we've got this stained garment because of wrath because of judgment. And so much of what we see in Revelation takes Old Testament and New Testament and shows us their similarity and how they're saying the same thing. And so it's helpful to look at some of these kinds of texts like Isaiah 63. It makes it a brutal, brutal understanding. It, it really sort of rocks our minds out of what we're comfortable with. But it seems to be more accurate. Our context in Revelation 19 is wrath, not redemption. Isaiah 63, verse 2. If you haven't found Isaiah 63, it's a good indicator that you need to find Ecclesiastes before next Sunday. Okay? Um, We're going to start a series in Ecclesiastes about meaning and the meaning of life, um, being desperate for meaning, and and just let me give you a heads up, you know? Just find it. Okay? Um, I'll give you some help along the way. And if you haven't found Isaiah... um, You can just listen and uh, look it up later. Isaiah 63, verse 2. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress? That's a good, important question. Why do you look like you've been smashing grapes with your feet, making a mess of yourself in your white garment? And here's the answer. I have trodden, smashed the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered or spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Frightening, awful, troubling. In light of where we're going in Revelation 19 in the context of second coming and judgment and justice, I'd be apt to think this is what's in view. Which is unsettling. It's unsettling. Well, if we continue on in Revelation chapter 19, I think we'll see that that frightful image that it paints for us seems to fit the context. Back to Revelation 19, 13 partially through that verse, it says this, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And maybe you're making, hopefully you're making mental associations. This one is called the word of God. And mentally you're thinking John 1, 1. Jesus is the word who became flesh. And, and John 1, 14, and he dwelt among us. He's called the word. He's called the revelation of God. And, and here we have in the revelation, the revelation of God, it would certainly seem to be Jesus. I would say it absolutely is Jesus. 
My mind now is going to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And remember, in Hebrews, in our context, we saw that it wasn't just a nice kind of context. It's a judgment context upon the unrepentant, and the word of God is living and active, and it will judge you, it will slay you, which seems to fit here. It seems to fit here rather clearly. Now, with that in mind, there's one more mental note for you to make. We're going to save a little time and not look these texts up. But follow, with, follow me, if you would. In Revelation, there's been a pattern, if we were to take the time to read it. And it's been those who stand for the Word of God, the Christ, the Savior, are persecuted. Again and again and again. And the pattern is they're faithful to the word of God. They're faithful to the word of God. They're faithful to the word of God. Revelation 1 9, Revelation 6 9, Revelation 20, verse 4. Fidelity to the word of God, and they're persecuted because of it. And now Jesus, the living word of God, comes, and he comes to bring about justice. He's bringing about vengeance because he's coming to defend his people. Because they've identified themselves with him. And the vengeance will be grave. The very same word that brought about creation, John chapter 1, verse 3, Psalm 33, verse 6, is going to judge creation. Now, what's interesting in verse 14, we learn he's not alone. In verse 14, and the armies of heaven. Some say, well, those are angels. And they could be angels, but it's interesting because angels are going to be on horses, which is, I think, unprecedented. And so that gets us thinking, well, well maybe the, the, these aren't angels. Maybe these are human beings. I'm going to lean toward that interpretation. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, that would look more like human beings in light of our accompanying Christ in chapter 17, verse 14. Chapter 19, verse 8, the bride's clothing is matching. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I wouldn't want to die for the interpretation, but I'm going to lean toward these are human beings. These are, these are the elect. These are redeemed sinners. And I'm not too fond of horses, but I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, maybe some of you can help me along the way. I'd be thrilled. I, I think we'll be guaranteed. We won't have to sign a safety waiver. <laughs> okay, we're, we're guaranteed to stay on. He'll give us helmets. <laughs> we won't need helmets. We're going to be on them. If we're on these horses, we'll be safe. And we'll know we'll be safe because, by the way, we won't do any of the fighting. As our text will make clear, we might be there with him in grandeur, but he will be the one who does all the fighting, which makes sense, sort of like our salvation. It's all him. It's all him. Returning to the focal point, who is Christ, verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. By way of contrast, this is not the defensive dagger sword of Ephesians 6, where we're to fight off the devil defensively. This is the granddaddy sword, the big sword, different Greek word, that is for offensive attack mode. And Jesus is not being on the defense here. He's got the big sword for slaying enemies. Verse 
And lest we think it's decorative, verse 15 goes on to say, with which to strike down the nations forcefully, violently, based upon the word that he's using here. King James translates it some places, smiting. And then verse 15 says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Identical to chapter 2, verse 27. A reference to Psalm 2, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. If you're familiar with the Bible very much at all, uh, and if you're on your way, you'll get there. Psalm 2 is used again and again and again and again in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. It's a messianic psalm, predictive. And here is a reference to Psalm 2. Because when Jesus comes again, he will not be meek and mild. He'll be ruling with a rod of iron. Symbolic, emblematic of, we, th- we might say iron-fisted, It's inflexible. His staff is inflexible. He's the king in what he says goes. Jesus isn't returning to be a politician. He's not coming to negotiate. I'll do this for you. I conquered you and you do this for me and we'll find a little happy medium. I can expand my kingdom. That's not the image we get about Jesus. That's not a biblical image. It's not a true image from Psalm 2. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Inflexibly righteous. An inflexible, just judge. Then the next image is in verse 15 at the end there. He, likely emphasizing once again, he himself, because it's personal. Jesus is personally involved as the judge. He, he himself, he will tread the winepress. Oh, this fits our Isaiah cross-reference. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You know, one of those takes your breath away. Rattles your cage. Unsettling, upsetting. What are you doing to my Jesus? What this is doing to to my Jesus is helping him to be the real Jesus. Because the my Jesus is an idol that I've made. It's helping me. I mean, how about that in verse 15? This makes Apocalypse Now the movie look like a Saturday morning cartoon. Which, by the way, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. There's a reason why that harsh, hardcore movie has the name that it has. In that sense, it might have better theology than some of us professing Christians. It's awful. It's unsettling. We're talking about the apocalypse. The apocalypse to come. If you're not at all troubled by this and unsettled, um, you're probably sinister. <laughs> okay, so please, please, please don't. I'm not trying to say, yeah, I believe this my whole life, and everybody who's sane believes this, and get on with it. I'm not trying to give that vibe. I'm trying to say, hey, let's remember this is this is what Christians have confessed, and this is in our Bibles, and 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 let, let's have a balanced view of Jesus, who 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 is very compassionate and kind, and meek, but he's not only that, and and this troubles us. This, this, this Jesus is unmanageable. 
But let's grow spiritually. Let's do what Paul says as he's praying for believers like you and me in Colossians 1 where he says he's praying that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's be increasing in our knowledge of God so that we can be better worshipers. Verse 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Wow. The title in and of itself is impressive. King of kings. The ultimate king. Lord of lord. Ultimate lord. It's also impressive because Paul in 1 Timothy uses this title of the father. It's furthermore impressive knowing that at times Roman officials like the double naming thing to emphasize their greatness. Here Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Romans are the ones who have exiled John to the island called Patmos. It's irony. The drama heightens. I don't know if that's true. I wrote it down in my notes, but I don't think it heightens. (laughs) It just becomes more intense. Second awful scene highlighting the return of Christ. We'll do this one quickly. The invitation to the birds of prey. Look at verse 17. I'm going to read this the wrong way, okay? I'm I'm going to do this on purpose. and I'll take a bath when I'm done and and, and get the the nasty demons off of me and and I'll repent and all that. But let's just take the verse out of context like we're so good at doing in America. Um, Then I saw an angel... You feeling touched by an angel? Feeling like you're in the outfield with angels? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Man, it's a nice day outside, sunny. Oh man, this is good. It makes me feel good. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds. I like birds too. And this shows us God cares about the birds. This is nice. Um, that fly directly overhead, and maybe that was a sign from God. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Oh, isn't it? God is so nice. He takes care of the wildlife. And Please write a poem about this and bring it next week, and we'll share it. Okay, I'm going to stop and repent a little bit, but out of context, this, this could means something entirely different. And I want to make the point that in context, we, there might be a lot of metaphors and images and even mysteries in the book of Revelation that we really can't really understand the point. But with any amount of integrity at all, reading a piece of literature, you read the verses before and you read the verses after, and oh yes, you pay attention to those other things, but you can probably arrive at what the, the, the author's intent is. And you all know full well that the way I read it was not the author's intent based upon the verses before. Now we're going to read it, and we're going to read the verses after, and you'll know full well that's not the author's intent, okay? Then I saw, verse 17 again, an angel standing in the sun, probably demanding attention so all can see focal point of everything. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, 
the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is, this is carnage. There's going to be so much death and so much destruction. The angel goes as a messenger from God, call all the vultures. Because they are going to have a feast. There's going to be so many dead people. And by the way, we should all stop suggesting that God is exclusive because he's very inclusive. Did you get the inclusivity vibe from the verse? Verse 18 can't be more inclusive. He goes from kings down to small, great and large. He says all men in this context, all different kinds of people. God is very, 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 very broad, very, 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 very inclusive. All different kinds of people are going to feed the bellies of the vultures. Wild. God is no respecter of persons. If you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in the one who will protect you, this is Psalm 2 verbiage, he will judge you. It doesn't matter who you are. Kings with a lot of clout, a lot of money, and the small people with nothing. It's his inclusiveness, by the way, that drives his exclusiveness. One feeds on the other. Wow. This is the vulture's version of the Lord's Supper, by the way. (laughs) And it makes Alfred Hitchcock look like another Saturday morning cartoon. And if you're above, like, how old? 40? You know what I meant. Um, Jesus spoke of this day, by the way. You can just jot down Matthew 24, 28. He talks about the vultures gathering for the corpses. Also, Luke 17, 37. Same thing. The vultures gathering for the corpses. If you've read the book of Revelation recently, you'll notice how different this sounds from the wedding feast. This is the vulture feast. You'll also notice it sounds very similar and familiar to Revelation 16, 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And if this is that, and if where people think Armageddon will be, which is debatable, it'll be. We just don't know where. It's a great place. It's an awful place. But regardless of whether it will be where some people think it's going to be and whether you've seen that place in Israel or not, it's going to be a great place. It's very troubling. So with the birds soaring overhead like they would over a wounded animal, but this time it's for people and their animals. We come to verse 19. Third awful scene highlighting the return of Christ. The defeat of the beast and the slaying of the unrepentant. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with all, with, excuse me, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They're against him. Notice we don't have weapons if we're the ones who are with him. 
nothing indicated anyway. He's the one with the sword, as we'll see. Then verse 20 says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We won't do it, but if you go to chapter 20, we see human beings are there too. People like you and like me who don't repent of sin and trust in the atoning work of Jesus. We go to the same place. 21, look with me if you would, this final verse. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. Notice it's not the other swords. It's not the other guys on horses. It's his from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds, oh my, were gorged with their flesh. Some have been so troubled by this that they've worked really, really hard to have it mean anything other than what it says. One of the most bizarre interpretations I've come across is someone suggests this is describing people getting converted and becoming Christians. I do the Scooby-Doo thing and go, hmm? I go, What? No, this is why you need to be converted and become a Christian. Because if you don't, the wrath of heaven opened and executed by none other than Jesus is coming your way. That's a frightening thing. If you'd like something to read this afternoon, you could read Revelation 22 and see that it ends positively for those who believe. The other thing you could do is read Psalm 2. It's so interesting. The very way to avoid the wrath of the Son is to worship the Son. And I don't mean S-U-N. It's S-O-N. Our hope is in Him because if our hope isn't in Him, our judgment comes from Him. He's the one. It comes down to what do you do with Jesus, which starts with how do you view Jesus? God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It always comes back to him. It always comes back to him. Let's end by either reading or hearing. If you've closed your Bible, then you can just listen. If not, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, And really, Revelation ends in a similar way that it begins in view of Christ's return. I find Revelation 1, 7 captivating, stirring, troubling. Causes me to pray a certain way. The the writer affirms these things in a way that I'm not quite ready to, if I'm really honest, affirm because I'm still so troubled by them, although I believe them. And and I want to pray toward being this kind of person who could say these things. Verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. And the author says, Amen. 
I know it's the right thing to say. I want to say that. But I know my motives are suspect. You're probably similar to me. So let's pray and ask God to bring us from point A to point B so that we could with good motives say amen. Lord, please help us to understand things, help us to embrace things, help us to flee the wrath to come by embracing the one who will execute wrath. May we see Jesus as our Savior so we don't have to meet him as our judge. And help us to come to grips with these things and grow us up spiritually. Make us more Christ-like so we could even say, even so. Amen. And so we say now, even so, amen.